Hey, and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. My name is Adam Duritz. And, and mine this is my friend. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I should have let you go there. <laughs> We're going to get this right one of these days. Well, in any case, who are you? I'm James Campion. Always. I'm always going to be James Campion, and I think you're always going to be Adam Duritz. That seems like a good... Let's stick with Something that. Something to depend on. As you know, my book, Accidentally Like a Martyr, is coming out June 19. But... I'm going to be making two appearances pre-launch this weekend, um, June 15th. Uh, We're going to be up at Rockville Center, Long Island, a great place called Turn of the Corkscrew. Got some wine and beer and books there. We're going to be playing music. Me and my good friend Barry Gell will be backing me up. We're going to play some acoustic songs from Warren Zevon and other stuff. Signing books for you. No one else is going to have books except for this place and Words Bookstore in Maplewood, New Jersey. Going to be there 5 p.m. on June 16th. It's going to be great. Lots of friends, family are going to be there. We're going to sign books again. We're going to play some songs. That place is excellent. they got this cool little basement area where they, you can hang and, and uh, you know, we can meet you. and It'll be a lot of fun. So check it out. This weekend, the 15th and 16th, I'll be making two appearances, and then the book is out Tuesday. I went to see Louis Black at oh. the City Winery a few weeks ago. I love Louis Black. It was a really impromptu show. He was just It seemed like he was uh, improvising the whole thing. I think it was a benefit for something in New York. I don't know. It was really cool. I'd never gotten to see him live, and I thought he was pretty brilliant. But That's I was walking out, too. and there was a poster for Joan Armatrading. And I hadn't thought about Joan Armatrading in a long time. But when I was younger, I was a huge fan of her as a singer. I don't know if you ever listened to her. Uh, I saw her play her. four or five times in the Bay Area when I was a kid. Uh, I just went to see her every time she came. She was such a brilliant improvisational singer and like songwriter. She just knocked me out. And uh, it just got me going back and listening to some Joan Armatrading stuff. Have you ever listened to her? Yes, my wife loves her. Uh, she loves a lot of the newer stuff, though. She is um, so unique and brilliant, and uh, I just got really caught up listening to her uh, after that. And I, I just I thought about it again this morning, and I, I just really wanted to play some of her stuff and talk about it because it really knocked me out. So I just want to start off and get right into it. I mean, there's a bunch of things that then occurred to me after that of other musicians, too. But I just want to start this off with Joan Armatrading because I don't know that anyone, for some reason, she doesn't get talked about. And she was a pretty huge musician when I was like in college in those years, when I, before right before Counting Crows, in in the all through the '80s, she was pretty huge. And one of her albums is even produced by Steve Lillywhite, pretty brilliantly. Walk under ladders, and uh, I'll play a song off that later on, but I want to play a few John Armstrong songs right now. Yeah, I'd like really to play something. I think the, the album that my wife loves is Lovers Speak from 2003. I don't even know that one. Oh, there's so some great songs on it. Yeah, let's, this let's is, dig on Joan Armstrong. This is from her album, uh, the album Joan Armstrong, which I think is... Uh, 70s? No, it's... it's Yeah, it's 70s, but it's... Uh, i trying to remember what year. It's uh, 1976. 76. Yeah. 1976, Joan Armatrading. This is Love and Affection. Oh, yes. Uh, this is such a good song. It really is. Just there isn't anybody like her, and I, I want people to hear her singing because it's... Anyways, this is Joan Armatrading, Love and Affection, 1976. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West Where's the best For romancing 
with a friend I can smile But with a lover I could hold my head back
Yeah, I mean, come on. That's so good. Like, just the the vocal arrangement alone, it just knocks me out. It's not folk rock. It's not soul. But it is. It's both those things. Um, a lot of people at the time compared her to Joni Mitchell. Joni that was like a, a British, you know... A black British version of Joni Mitchell is what they were, you know, like what one of the comparisons made at the time, you know. I remember when Tracy Chapman first hit, you know, we all went back to, oh, she's just doing Joan Armitage. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if it's it's it, the combination of the soulful voice with the acoustic uh, instruments. I also love the string arrangements on that, which is very 70s and the kind of stuff I grew up on. We both grew up on, I know. that that Really that style of adding lush strings to the song and not overdoing it because as we've talked about on this podcast before whether it's the Carpenters or some of the chamber music we played or talked about that we didn't get to play you know some people overdid it a little bit in the 70s but that's a great example of using it as a rhythm instrument and I love how the song opens up with just the piano and the guitar playing the same thing it's very rich and then she comes in as you said with a very unique vocal it's very soulful beautiful rhythmic and it, it builds to that very long outro, which is what it was. Was she actually combined two different songs huh. when she wrote that song to make that work that way? Because it kind of it's one kind of song, and then it shifts in the second half of the song to a re- wow. this this like repeating phrase that she keeps doing, which is from a second song. I guess. I, I, wow, I, that song is fantastic to me. It, it kills me. The drummer on that I just figured out is Dave Maddox from uh, from Fairport Convention. Oh. And that was produced by uh, Glenn Johns. Produced all the Who records. Oh, sure. Um, a great English British producer yeah, whose sure. son, Ethan, uh, produced part of uh, Hard Candy, Up All Night. Yeah. It was produced a by his son, beautiful Ethan. Song. Yeah, I, it, it's, um, it's, it's wonderfully arranged. And, and she's not overdoing it there. I mean, we've been celebrating over this podcast a lot of great singers that tend to go. And they're really running the show, and it's amazing to hear. She's not; she's kind of in the song, but it's but but she's she's it's she's declaring herself in it. It's just I always like that song. That's it's funny you played that song because I think of that song and I think of Joan Arbentrading. I don't know if she has. Is it just she have a signature song? Well, that's probably her biggest hit. Yeah, um, but she has uh, "Drop the Pilot" later on. Um, another song I want to play off this album uh, is called "Down to Zero. I don't know if you remember that song. It's a pretty amazing song about a woman who like whose lover leaves her for an, another woman who she thinks is prettier than she is. And uh she's just sort of saying, remember who who was there for you in all these moments? Remember who really loves you in all the detail, all the moments and the details of your life. Remember who this was? And I think he comes back to her in the end. But uh this is the album that this is from. Right? This is the cover of that album? I can't see, but she, it, she should be on the cover with a... Uh, she's playing an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, but that's weird because I thought this was her first album. No, it's And it turns third, out she had two other records. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they didn't chart. No, this is the one, the first one that was... Rec- she's from St. Kitts, and I don't know... I think this is the first one that was recorded entirely in London. She grew up there, but she moved to London and uh, recorded this one. This is the first one she did with Glyn Johns, I think. Uh, but check out this song. It, it, it's it's the u- total uniqueness of the vocals and how they're like, they feel so improvised and, and uh, it feels so of the moment. In yes. that way, she's like Joni then. Yeah, that's, it's part of, 
just a really original take on how to sing things and a freedom to go from one way to another and uh, hmm. the fragility she's willing to show on it too. This is Down to Zero.
That's the first track on that record and a wonderful way to introduce it. I think I've heard that record before all the way through. Probably not more than once, maybe twice. I don't own it, but those songs are very memorable. It's like I, I remember hearing that song. I mean, maybe it just yeah. sounds so rich. It, it sounds like everything else I might have heard. No, but I just think it was on the radio back then. It's, yeah. It's a really good song. It really is. It's just there's nothing else that sounds like her is the, the thing that really knocks me out. I, I found myself like not always remembering the titles, but stumbling through all these songs and remembering them. Uh, just Oh, wow. She's playing there. That's why you saw the poster. I was thinking that maybe it was a vintage poster. No, no. She's she was playing coming City to play Warner. and I couldn't go. I wasn't, oh, I wasn't around. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, no, because it's no, it's it's not that I wasn't around. It's not. I'm, I'm going to be on tour. Ah. It's in July, I think. Mm. And, uh, well, if we play this before July, go see our journal. Yeah, I mean, City Winery is a great room, and her voice has maintained its integrity over the years. Like I said, I, I was introduced back introduced to her. Erin playing "Lovers Speak" over and over and over again. She just loved that. She used a lot of those songs in her uh, yoga classes. And I thought, wow, this woman is really sound. I mean, not that she was belting back in the day either. But you know, when you get older, you, you know, your your voice takes different turns. Hers has maintained the integrity of her voice. It's very sweet and extremely uh, recognizable and unique, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to. I, I kind of want to check out some more because I can't. I'm just looking at the title of the song "Heaven," and I swear to God, I've I, this is one of the songs I love, but I didn't I didn't go back over it. But I, I kind of want to play it. And, Same record? No, this is later. I think this was just a single recorded for uh, for a greatest hits record, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyways, I'm going to play it for me and you and for everyone out there because I want to hear it. Sure, sure. So this is "Heaven." Some 
wow, there's a couple of parts in this that we were talking about as it was playing that was was quite arresting. Um, The thing that really spoke to me, and I had not heard that song. I never heard that song before. Uh, when she sings, because I found the perfect someone who could take me in their arms and love me. I found the perfect someone who could take me in their arms and love me. When she repeats that in a, in a blues refrain, you know, the way Muddy Waters would, a John Lee Hooker, but she's doing it in such a romantic way. And the way she sings it with that baritone, you know, it just cuts right through me, man. It's amazing. I love that part, the, the, the kind of pre-chorus and the chorus, came into my life, made me think that I was really something. Took me by surprise, someone with your charm looking my way. That's sort of like, I didn't think I was the kind of person who could attract that. That's sort of a very real. Uh, I don't deserve sort of this. Embarrassed kind of humility there. Yes. And I love that chorus. Am I in heaven? Am I in heaven? Have I gone up? Have I gone up? The way she phrases that yeah. to the big cloud number nine. Right. You know, I, you can really hear the the Steve Lillywood on that because I think he produced the two albums previous to this, the key. And uh, I mean, I know he produced the key and uh, walk under ladders, which are the two albums before this. And then I think she puts out a greatest hits record and heaven is the, uh, the bonus track on that. That's like the, uh, the single on the greatest hits album, the new material, uh, you know, and some of the stuff on on those records, you know, her, the, the band on walk under ladders. And uh, I think maybe I know on walk under, I was going to play a song from walk under ladders, which is the song, the titles from, which is called I'm lucky, but the band on this is crazy. It's like, Jerry Marotta, uh, Tony Levin. So there's, it's like the rhythm section Great of Peter Gabriel's player, yeah. bands on this, which are also produced by Steve Lillywhite. So, Those right. early Peter Gabriel albums are all Steve Lillywhite. Yes, except uh, for the one that Ezrin did. Which is which one? The first one. The oh, okay. one with Salisbury Hill on it. But you're right. We should mention that. You know, we've mentioned him a million times with Steve Lillywhite, who produced Hard Candy, but also produced those early U2 records. So great. And as Adam's mentioned on the podcast, had, had been like the finisher on almost all the U2 records. Produced one of our favorite records from the 90s, uh, The Laws. His hands are all over this. In fact, when, when Adam was playing this, I said to him, ooh, this has got an 80s kind of Lillywhite feel. And he, he rightfully pointed out that she, the two preceding albums he produced – so, yeah, it's really beautiful. Really beautiful. The drum sound is really that, that, that gated drum sound that Steve Lillywhite pioneers on uh, uh, Peter Gabriel's third album. Uh, the third album. And yeah. also that, 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 that staccato guitar, electric guitar that just kind of cuts through everything. Yeah. Totally reminds me of the stuff on the Laws record or Peter Gabriel. But yes. that, that drum sound that is the quintessential Peter Gabriel sound, it's the drum sound. The drums on that record are played by uh, half by Jerry Murata, I think, and half by Phil Collins. Did Murata play on Shock the Monkey? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's yeah, him later on. Tony that Levin, is... and that's still Murata. But this, you know, and, and you hear it later on, on uh, In the Air Tonight, Peter Gabriel's, oh, yes. I mean, uh, Phil Collins, Phil Collins that sure. big drum sound. And then, of course, it's on War and all over the U2 stuff. Right. But, uh, you know, it starts on that Peter Gabriel. So, but you've got that rhythm section of Tony Levin and Jerry Murata. You have Ray Cooper, the percussion player from sure, all Elton the John. Elton John stuff. <clears throat> sure. Thomas Dolby playing the synthesizers on it. Who Dolby, by the way, did a record with – I didn't know this until I read the Joni Mitchell book, Reckless Daughter. He did a record with Joni Mitchell. I don't know which one, but an 80s record. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, and they, they practically killed each other the whole time. But And then, like, you have – not on this song I'm going to play, but on a lot of the other songs, you have Sly and Robbie – doing sure, drums sure, on sure. this record uh, and uh, Andy Partridge from uh, XTC playing wow, guitars on a few geez. of the songs uh, we could do a whole podcast just on the four, four or five artists you just mentioned yeah. right there I love XTC love Sly and Robbie so this is a little different because Steve has like really between her and Steve and they've invested a bunch of synthesizers it's, it's, it's 81 that was from 83 but this is a couple years before that uh, and a few years after the first stuff we were listening to 
and and they really doing a lot of the sound that would then become very emblematic of his stuff. It's right. already happened in Peter Gabriel, and about a year after this, it will be on War. Uh, the right. the uh, but I mean, this is a little different. But it, this is Joan taking her sound into a, another place in the '80s, incorporating more of those synthesizers, and uh, it's a pretty interesting song called "I'm Lucky." I love that song for so many reasons. First of all, de- definitely captures the keyboards and, and, and her phrasing in there. And her, her she's up in a higher register, so it doesn't really sound like her. And, and you made the point, which you should make again for the, for the dear listeners, which is very true, is that it sounds nothing like her 70s stuff and the stuff she did with Glenn Johns. But she is completely immersed in it, and she's so talented that she must be such a 
an inspiration for someone producing her or working with her with different instruments. She becomes an instrument in herself. Well, you think about um, Steve having had the success with Peter Gabriel and this and with War, especially War. When he after War, he became the most sought after producer in the world, right. Steve Lily White, and. Uh, I think the record he does right after that is Marshall Crenshaw's second album, yeah, which Field you Day, like. <laughs> which is which is a f- following up his his brilliant first album, just the self titled Marshall Crenshaw, and it's completely the wrong sound for that. Like Marshall's sound does not translate from his thing to that. Now, when this song "I'm Lucky" starts, there's not a moment where you think it could possibly be Joan Armitrading, but then her voice comes in, and she. This is her wanting to spread her wings and do new things and try new sounds Embrace and work with synthesizers. The new technology, yep. and, and she goes to work with Steve Lillywhite and she makes this record, which is brilliant, and which she takes all those sort of cold-seeming uh, electronic instruments of the 80s, which are becoming the new thing, and inhabits them in a way that makes them completely... It's an incredible contrast of the cold synthesizer sound against... The warmth of her voice, and 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 she's still singing with that same innovative, incredible phrasing and those clipped syllables. You know, uh, I'm lucky, I'm lucky, I'm lucky. I can walk under ladders. She's singing her voice like her. She's making it brief and clipped phrases like the synthesizer, yes. but she's making it so warm and. And so full of soul. She's doing a whole different thing. Because that's just not even a song. It's like a patiche of sounds, but she makes it a song. Yeah. I mean, it's just, which is what's really incredible about it, and which is what a lot of great bands did in the 80s. But most people from the 70s didn't make that shift and make it work as well. No, ter- some of them you know, were terrible. There was a lot of revolt when Springsteen, for instance, started using synthesizers, sure. and a lot of his fans hated it. I think Tunnel of Love is a great record, but... It's a little more dated sounding on his record. But you, even before that, I'm born in the USA with the Dancing in the Dark set, that keyboard. Yeah. Na, 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 na. That, that stuff is, was like shocking to a lot of people when they first – and that was the first single off that record, which is his biggest record. Yeah. But the original Springsteen fans, they were a little taken aback by that. You know, and, and those songs don't sound as – I mean you could, on, I always wish Ton of Love in some ways had organs instead of synthesizers because I think it might sound better. He's writing some of his best songs ever, maybe his most romantic record. Uh, on that record, and it, it, they're a little off-putting in some ways. I, yeah, oh, I it's love not that a pleasant record. Sounding record, but I on think. this record, it doesn't have that effect. It's like, in fact, the contrast is the most interesting part about it. It's really cool that she's doing that, especially since she has Thomas Dolby on it. Who and I would like to play a track from Dog Eat Dog, which I mentioned earlier is Joni Mitchell's record, uh, a wonderful track called Ethiopia. A little later on to show you the contrast because Joni and uh, Joan Arbitrator, same thing, the warm voice. Uh, Joni predates her by about five or six years into the 60s, but Joan coming from the early 70s, both of them coming from that singer-songwriter sort of warmth, freezing kind of thing, and both of them working with Dolby or Lily White. Now, I want to say this, too. This has to be said. For years, I've always couched this. The early 80s were dominated, as far as I can remember, and I worked at a record store then, and I, I was really studying music then, and that is, or at least how the music was transitioning from the 70s to 80s. Jellybean Benitez's production of the first Madonna record the first Madonna record was aped more than anything else I think in the 80s that sound really was aped to the point where she had to go completely outside and she went to Nile Rodgers to do Like a Virgin and the early Prince records which is a great example of what you were talking about Prince is 
especially 1999, is a wash, like automatic and all this yeah. stuff. But he's got such a soulful voice, it cuts through that shit and makes it songs. Like if you think about the sounds of Little Red Corvette, it's like yeah. this, this whole phalanx of keyboards, but yet he's singing with such seduction and such soul on that record. This is what Joan Arbitrating and Lily White are doing and predating all of that. So I think I've come to be educated in this episode because I've never really considered Lily White to be as instrumental in that 80s keyboard sound. Granted, I know about his work with Peter Gabriel, and we're going to play some Peter Gabriel to give you a a flavor of a balance of that. But I think this Joan Arbitrating record is very, very much in lockstep with what Lily White was doing then. He was was bringing artists into the 80s beautifully and, and framing how they were doing it. Well, I mean, yeah, and there's just so many things he did. We've talked about it before, but U2, The Rolling Stones, XTC, Dave Matthews, the big Dave Matthews What XTC records. record did he work on? I think it's Skylarking. What's this? Oh, uh, is that, that Skylarking's him? I think it is. Um, oy, oy, oy. Let's see. During the 80s, he did the first Psychedelic Furs album, uh, uh, Peter Gabriel's third record here, uh, Boy October and War for U2. The early uh, triumvirate records. He sure. did big country record. Uh, it doesn't say here which XTC records, it, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's like all of those early records are him. Um, which are masterful. I mean, if he did that record, that record is great. And I think he did because I think Immer mentioned when well, it's he more was than working that, with you I guys think... that he that was one of the records that he and uh, Dave Bryson were like geeking about with him. Well, also, he does The Scream. He's the producer for Susie and the Banshees, which we talked about in the punk. Yes, thing. of course. But right. he does uh, he does drums and wires, and Black Sea. I'm pretty sure for XTC. Uh, I think he does English Settlement too. Let's see, English Settlement. No, XTC produced English Settlement themselves. Uh, and I'm, I'm wrong about the other one. I'm sure. That, and now I'm thinking about it. It's like Hugh Padgham or something did uh, that other record. I'm thinking of. Skylarking, I want to say it's huge. Oh, no, it's Todd Rundgren. That's what it was. Oh, right, right. That's Todd, right. Todd Rundgren, Rundgren does yes. That That's their finest record, I think. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. It, th- it's there's the so many one. good records in there to me by them. A lot of people. And, and there was like Oranges drums. and Lemons. What was that one? That that's was, later. That's that's after. after. Yeah, with uh, Simpleton. Uh, yeah, the Mayor, Mayor of Simpleton. Simpleton. Yeah. Um, there's an XCC, the Casino, Talking Heads record in there. Oh, he works with Eddie and the Hot Rods, who we also play. Yes, uh, yes. Um, Morrissey. Did he work on Fear of Music? What what record did he work on with For them? Talking Heads? Talking Heads, yeah. Uh I don't know. I know he does Under the ta- Under the Under the Table and Dreaming with Dave Matthews. Um and I've said it before, even though I my, my heart goes out to This Desert Life, Hard Candy is the I think the the finest sounding of all the County Crows records. It just it just bursts from the speakers. Wonderfully produced and and worked on by all you guys. But Oh, also Steve did If I Should Fall from Grace with God and Peace and Love, I think with the Pogues. So Fairy Tale of New York, which his wife, Kirstie McCall, mm. sings on. Octung Baby comes back for that. I did not embrace that record right away. It was like uh, R.E.M.'s Out of Time record. When I first heard it, I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> it took me a while to get to it. Um, you know, I was coming off of uh, the brilliance of Joshua Tree and in the case of... Um, of um, the other way, I mean, it's just it's just you're expecting something else. We talked about this a million times with Paul Simon and everything. If you're expecting something, that's not fair as a listener. But you know, you, you're bringing other stuff to the table. In the case of me, I, I loved those REM records prior to Out of Time, which you know made them superstars. That's got like wait, the, but he's there on Joshua Tree too. 
Oh, yeah. But that, that to me is a Lanois, you know, record. Sort of, but it's always... Uh, from everything I've heard about the way they record, everything is a huge mess. <laughs> they, yeah. they record for years with with yes. Lanois, and they have a million pieces of everything with him and Brian Eno. But then Steve comes in and makes records. Out I've of always them. I've always thought the uh, the uh, Unforgettable Fire was totally Eno. I mean, that sounds like Bowie's Heroes. You know, they're going for that thing. But Joshua Tree is fantastic because it changes the band. It gives them, they, they're, they're obsessed with American music. It gives them more of a, a, a rock and roll feel. They were getting away from the 80s, sort of the, you know, the classic edge kind of style of, of guitar playing. And I always gave Lanois credit for that, but maybe not, maybe not. You know? I would give Lanois credit for some of the sounds on those records after the, the acoustic the, the kind of slide lily white sound. ones. Yeah. But I mean, I think, because for me, a producer is so much about creating the body of work I don't think you can underestimate how important Steve is on every U2 record because I think... Well, you work with him so you can tell. I you think know those guys make these big bodies of music that are unwieldy and they don't know what to do with them and then he helps bring them in together and make them records. Focus. But, uh, but we focus. wanted to play something else. We're getting way off the subject because we're no, talking no, about this Steve. Is a, yeah, no, this, because we're talking yeah. about Steve, so you wanted to put... You, you, you we wanted to play Peter some Peter Gabriel. Yes. because Also because it's, it, uh, it's a lot of the same band from, from the... Uh, the John Armitrading thing we just played. And it depicts perfectly a great artist who comes to the table with wonderful music and ideas that someone like Steve Lillywhite or Dolby or Tony Levin can take and make into these masterpieces. This song in particular, I mean, people will know this song. It's a musical tour de force, so beautifully done. And for my money, it's really where Steve Lillywhite, you know, becomes Steve Lillywhite and adds all the things you said to these other records. Yeah, which is, by the way, we keep going back in time because we had Heaven, which is 83, and then we went to I'm Lucky from Walk Under Ladders, which is 81. Right. And now it's uh, Peter Gabriel's third album with The Melting Face. Uh, 80? Is which is 80? 1980. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we keep moving back in time but that's our good, references. Though. Everything informs everything else. But um, anything you'd like to say about this record? Because you, you, you would say, well, what should we play? And I thought there are so many great songs on this record. I mentioned, is Shock the Monkey on this record? No, it's on the It's on the one. other one. It's right. On one. So this, this is better because, well, not better. They're both great songs. But I think this is an excellent example of Peter Gabriel's sort of organic way of presenting a song with a lot of the instrumentation and sounds of the period. Well, and there's like... Uh, I'm trying to think who the players on this song. Phil Collins doesn't play on this song. Um, Famously, who was in Genesis with Peter Gabriel. With Peter Gabriel. Jerry Murata's the drummer. Tony Levin is not the bass player on this record. Not playing his stick, as he usually did. Mm. That's John Giblin. Uh, Larry Fast plays a lot of synthesizers. David Rhodes, who was in that band that I saw touring, is the guitar player here. Robert Fripp and Dave Gregory Jeez. are also on this record. Dave Gregory, of course, being from XTC. The background vocals are Kate Bush right. um, on this on this song. They're uh, saying don't give up with him on So. Right. Synthesizers, the bass synthesizer and the regular synthesizer are all played by Peter. Uh, uh, this is uh, the single from the third album, uh, Games Without Frontiers.
Fade out. Okay, a couple of things. You, it's not exactly the attack that was in heaven of keyboards, but on the fade, when he starts to fade out and there's not him in there kind of dominating the song, all those weird keyboards sounds that are driving that song are pushed to the fore. It's great. As the song is fading, they're, you can almost see in the mix, they're fading up. Back in the days when they faded up, they're fading up, I think, all those all those cool keyboard sounds. Man. And that, like, that great groove it's like cowbell and rim shot going oh, together whatever that is on there so um, good. 
Well, that's what Peter Gabriel was all about. He, you know, uh, as a solo artist, the rhythms are fantastic in his songs. Just fantastic. Even the big hits like uh, In Your Eyes and everything had just amazing. You mentioned Tony Levin played on a lot of those records. He's a wonderful bass player. So he had the best rhythm sections on those records. So I, you know, I wanted to play something else right now because uh, I want to come back to the other one you're talking about because I want to kind of get out of this sound because this song has been running in my head for days now. And, you know, it's, it was a big hit years ago, uh, but I don't know. We don't hear much about uh, Gladys Knight anymore. Yes, you know, and why? Know, well, I don't know. People aren't taught, you know, no it. one seems to be going back to Gladys Knight songs. And this song has just been sticking in my head for the last few days. And I listened to it like yesterday and I, I, I couldn't believe how good and resonant it was to me. Uh, what record is that on? Because I've got a couple of hers on vinyl. I saw I have the one with Midnight Train to Georgia on it. Well, that's the one I'm talking about. Um, is Midnight Train to Georgia. I was just thinking about this oh song. Oh my god, that song um, is one of the great songs of the 1970s. Period. The bizarre part about this song is that it was originally written as a country song called Midnight Plane to Houston. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and that's right. this guy, uh, Jim Weatherly, who wrote it, he he said. Uh, it was kind of. It was based on a conversation I had with someone about taking a midnight plane to Houston, and the people he was talking about were his friend Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett Majors. Yes, Farrah, who had just started dating, and he wrote this song about like one of them. I think Farrah Fawcett was on the phone. He was in the room, and she was on the phone, right? And she said something like, "Take the midnight train to Houston." Yeah, come like come here right now. Yeah, come. And it was just like. <laughs> I had no idea about that because I've always thought of it as something so different. And then I guess Whitney Houston's mom, Sissy Houston, was going to record it with – and the producer said, do you mind if we change it to Midnight Train to Georgia instead of Midnight Plane to Houston? Because that just didn't make as much sense because her name was Sissy Houston, I guess, too. And so he didn't want to use the title Houston for Sissy Houston because then it was like a midnight train to her. Right. Uh, And I think it was like she was going to follow him to Hollywood or something and she could have had her own life. But – no, this is a true story yeah, I, because I, I, this was from a book I read last summer that I re- reviewed um, for the Aquarian called Cover Me, The Stories Behind the Greatest Cover Songs of All Time by Ray Padgett. That is a great book and that is an excellent story. Yeah, it's so – I didn't know anything. I was just thinking about the song and I wanted to talk about it and then this bizarre story about it being fucking – A cover song. A country song no less. Yeah. It's like <laughs> – Yes. He said, here it is, Weatherly at a program in Nashville said he was the quarterback at the University of Mississippi. The NFL didn't work out for him, so he was in L.A. trying to write songs. He was in a rec football league with Lee Majors and called Majors one night. Farrah Fawcett answered the phone and he asked what she was doing and she said she was taking the midnight plane to Houston to visit her family. Um, That's what it is, yes. And uh, I just thought that was so bizarre. that like I was just thinking this is like the most, a lot like Call Me. You know, that Gladys Knight wrote it about right. this guy leaving in the middle of the night, you know, like the Aretha Franklin song. And it turns out it's originally a country song about, you know, Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett leaving on a plane, which I had no idea about this. But I, I, I just want to play this song because it's just. Well, first of all, this song is the is one of the I'm serious. It's one of the great. And if you have a chance, listen to the Indigo Girls on their live album cover this it's fantastic because they do the woo woo they do the bit of the, about the, the you know the, the background singers the, the, the pips do and and the record that this is on which has got imagination on it there's some great songs on this record it's a fantastic album this song is so beautifully done and it's a great song about making a decision 
lyrically it's great, about what I should do. The, the man has failed. I'm going to follow him. He's, he's going to come back, and I've got to nurture him back to health because he's failed being a big star. And he's going to take the midnight train back to meet me, and I'm going to meet him on that train. It's so great. Yes. Which, I mean, it's, it's not actually – there's no story about Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett in not this song. All. No. It's just that when she said that, she was taking the midnight plane to Houston to visit her family – he thought that was a great, phrase, a great phrase, and he wanted to use it to write this song. Sure. And it's like, it is an amazing song. Just starting with, mm, L.A. proved too much. Mm, L.A. proved too much for the man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, just the, the interlocking vocals between Gladys and the, and the Pips are so well done. Anyways, it, it just, it's two arrangements. It's an arrangement for her and an arrangement for them. Did you ever see – do you remember the Richard Pryor show? It was a short live show. I, think I, have, it might have, been all, a, I have it all here. Oh, yeah, where, where the, he, it was just and the pips. Oh, yeah. And they did the song without her. <laughs> They're just going, going back. Oh, God, that reminds me of something else, and I'm playing it right after this. But we're going to start this off. We, we just got to play the Glass Night and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia. Sure.
Okay, that's a great song. That, that I, I mean, it's so bizarre to me. I will say one thing about that song. Uh, <clears throat> she's me. gone with him because he can't cut it in L.A. She's gone with him because she loves him so much that she's got a, I'd rather live in his world than live without him in mine. And I want to say, <clears throat> sister, you stay in L.A. Like, <laughs> there's no fucking reason to go home with the deadbeat to Georgia when you could be Gladys Pitt. I mean Gladys, Gladys, Knight. Gladys Knight. Yeah. And uh and clearly Right. She's you know, she stays Gladys Knight. But it's yes. not about her really. But I want to play you this next song because when you when we were listening to that, it made me think of something that I watched last week. And we're gonna play the song for you guys, but I'm gonna show the video to James uh and you are gonna all rush after you listen to this podcast to YouTube and check out this video because it is so fucking cool. It's a performance on like Solid Gold or something. It's this band that I loved when I was a kid called uh, Heatwave playing the song Groove Line. And I was going to use oh, it for the yeah. road songs thing, even mm-hmm. though it's just the barest. Just because it says I'm going for a ride on the Groove Line doesn't necessarily mean they're on the road. He means it as a metaphor for I'm going to go fun- get funky. Yes. Uh, but I have to show this to James. So you all listen to the song, and I'm going to show the video to James. And he's going to freak out at how fucking cool this live performance is. Uh well, sort of live performance. This is Heat Wave with Groove Line.
Okay, so how about fucking Heat Wave? How about that video? Uh, it's pretty amazing. Those guys are constantly on the move. I mean, you gotta watch this. It is the greatest. I mean, because I was thinking of this because the Pips have the great dance moves, and you see the Pips on Solid Gold doing uh, that stuff with Gladys Knight on that song. Yes. Um, but Heat Wave on the live performance, sort of. And they're singing and playing it. Uh, yeah, they're, they're well, not really, Bobby, but right, I mean, right. I'm sure it's. But it's I'm sure that's their stage show. They're doing their stage show. It's just they have this great. The whole band is dancing. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, you got to watch it. It's Groove Line, the video. It's from Solid Gold. First yes. of all, it's a great song. It is a great. But song. second of all, that video is fantastic. Interesting thing about Heat Wave, the guys were brothers and they had a band. They were in the army and they were stationed, I think, in Germany and they were in a band. They decided to relocate, I guess, when they got out of the service to London. And when they were in London, they hooked up with this keyboard player songwriter named Rod Temperton, who then ended up writing all the songs and he plays the organ. You, you see him on the, some of the videos, you can see him on the side over there. He plays the organ and, and wrote all the songs, I think, for Heat Wave. But after that, he, he came to the attention because of that record, I think. Of Quincy Jones, who hired him to write a bunch of songs for Michael Jackson, and he writes uh, uh, like "Rock with You," a bunch of stuff for "Off the Wall," which is Michael Jackson's. It, they call it a lot of people say it's his first solo, but it's really his second solo album. Uh, ben is his first one, right? No, his first one is just called Michael. Uh, it's called uh, "Got to Be There." Has like "Rock and Robin" and "Got to Be There" oh, on yeah. it. Um, but wasn't "Rock and Robin" under the Jackson Five? No, no, it's uh, his solo record. Ah. I have that. Ben was but a single. Was oh, yeah, but I thought there was a record. The movie. Oh, no. Okay, I, it's my first record I ever bought. I think is that it's either that record or Jackson Five's Greatest Hits. Those are my first two records. Right, right. Maybe tomorrow, um, which you and I talked about a million yeah. times. Yeah, but he writes uh, "Rock with You" and a few other songs for "Off the Wall," number one hits, and then he writes a bunch of songs for Thriller, including Thriller. He plays keyboards and does a lot of the vocal arrangements oh, on that record. Oh, that's that guy? But he wrote Thriller, too. And he wrote a bunch of stuff on Thriller as well. I don't know which songs. But yeah, it's the guy from Heat Wave who then, because of Heat Wave, he comes to Quincy Jones's attention. And Quincy hires him to write songs for Michael Jackson. And he ends up writing all the biggest hits. Rock With You for Off the Wall. Did he write takes... Always and Forever? Because that's, oh, yeah, that's, me... that's a Heat Wave song. It's on that same record. Right, but that is a great song. Yeah, that, song, that album Central Heating, I think is what it's called. Right, it's right. that Heat Wave record. I Always loved it when I was a kid. Forever. One of my favorite records. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had to play that for you. Wow. Um, that's a great lineage. I never knew that. Yeah. That's so, pretty uh, damn cool. Sticking with that weird, I don't know, we're just doing with some weird stuff right now. Yes. Um, I was thinking of this band that I really I, – I liked this album. Uh, I love is maybe a strong word, but I liked this album a lot when uh, it first came out. It was Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam. When they got really big, he had a side project, this band with a couple – I don't know the singer's names. I don't know anything about it. I just remember it was him. And a friend of his played drums, I think. And they formed this band called Brad. And they made a record – made a few records, I think. But this is the first – this is a song called Buttercup. From that first record, and it's just kind of this '90s grunge soul thing. Is this after Pearl Jam's first yeah, record? Yeah, after Pearl yeah. Jam blows up, and a few years later, he makes they make this record. Uh, oh, I think cool. the record's called Shame, and the band is Brad. And this is the song called Buttercup. Check this out.
You know, that definitely has a, a soul side to it, but funnily enough, that, that could have fit on 10. I could, I could hear better oh, singing that. Oh, it would be never the same way. Like, this guy's got all this restraint. No, he, he, the vocals are definitely soulful, but yeah. the backing track could have, you know, it's not totally off the beaten path of grunge. 
No, it's got some of it in it. I mean, it's the same guitar player as the as the right, right. But I wouldn't. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have heard that on there. It's right before verses. This is released, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I get, I hear a little bit of like the, the 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 backing track for like black or something, you know, without the big rousing chorus that Vetter goes into in that song. But yeah, I mean, it's it's what I'm trying to say is it's not that out. It doesn't sound like I when you first said it, I thought, oh, I'm gonna you're gonna play something that has, has no, but it, it definitely no, it's sounds same, like same him. guy, you right, know, right. It's Stone Gossard, who's involved in that stuff. I just it just had this kind of cool like. Soul. He sings a lot of falsetto stuff. Otherwise, in the other places in the album, he's very Prince influenced in his singing, uh, and you can hear it in the restraint on that song. Although he doesn't go into the falsetto stuff as much. They only did one record, I guess, right? No, they did a few. Oh yeah, I, I, just don't, I don't know any of the other ones, but they they made a few records, I think. That's cool. Um, so I, I want to play another thing. My friend, when we were first touring in like the first album, uh, you know, we did some shows. We did a show. In like Minneapolis or no Chicago, the St. Patrick's Day gig that's a big festival thing they do there, and we we got to pick our own bands to open for us, and we picked Frente and Velocity Girl and the Gigolo Ants and this band from Norman, Oklahoma called Chainsaw Kittens. Right, and I had met them through I think the guys in Flaming Lips, and no, no, I'm sorry, I met. I met them on the street in in Hollywood. I was with I was at the Viper Room and I was with um, Maria McKee, and she's like, "You've got to come watch my friend play tonight with me." He's playing at the Roxy, and we walked over to the Roxy, and uh, Maria was standing out front, and uh, she was with this guy, nice kind of quiet guy. We were all talking. This guy Tyson, and we were talking for about an, uh, forty minutes out there, um, and he says, "Okay, I got to go." And he, he walks away, and I was like, oh, where's he going? And she says, oh, no, he's, he's in the band. He's about to go play. And I was like, really? Because he's a really quiet, unassuming guy. He's a very sweet guy. And then the band comes on stage, and the fucking lights come up, and Tyson is dressed like head to toe in gold lame. <laughs> and he is, it was like Bowie had just appeared on the streets of L.A. fronting a grunge band. Not a grunge band. What am I talking about? Just like an, an indie rock spectacle. They were fucking... It sounded like Ziggy Stardust on, on fucking speed. <laughs> they were so good. And he had turned from this quiet, unassuming guy into a complete fucking rock star in the time it took him to change his clothes. And uh, he and I have been friends ever since. And I love this guy dearly. He's insane. And he is a brilliant songwriter, Tyson Mead. And that band, the Chainsaw Kittens, was fucking amazing. And uh, he's actually running for Congress right now in Oklahoma. No uh, kidding. Which uh, maybe he'll be the first gay rock star congressman. I, I, he is a in brilliant, Oklahoma. beautiful guy, and he's trying to make a difference in the world. And I, I love him dearly. And uh, just from what I know of him personally, I, I, I gotta say, you know, he'd be great in Congress because he is. A truly beautiful person, but he also fucking rocks <laughs> as a guitar player and as a singer and as a songwriter. And this is from their album, The All American Chainsaw Kittens, or maybe it's just called The All American, but the cover says The All American Chainsaw Kittens. And I've always thought of it as The All American Chainsaw Kittens because uh, they are the quintessential All American band from Oklahoma in a way. And then at the same time, they are absolutely the counterculture come to life. And he is brilliant. 
And this is one of my favorite songs by this band. This is Calling from Space by the Chainsaw Kittens. It's got the volume Or the landing Angels from last days In stockings and lace And it takes away the edge It takes away
very Bowie, but a very in a very good way. Original in its way, but uh, when he starts to go into the falsetto there and the pianos come in, sounds very much like what Mick Ronson did with Bowie and then Bowie and Mick did with uh, Lou Reed, like on Satellite of Love or some of the stuff that Bowie did in um, on uh, Aladdin Sane. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful, very unique, and I I, I love it. I love it. Um, that that was also early nineties, mid nineties. Oh yeah, now it's like uh, that might be around two thousand actually. Oh, that far because it's a few. I mean, when they, that's that's a few years later. So after you were living in L.A. I'm, at the time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I just I have such a soft spot in my heart for that guy. Tyson is just a genius, but also like completely like. One of the greatest, funniest, <clears throat> well, uh, loveliest people. And, you know, it was like, imagine David Bowie growing up in Norman. <laughs> you know, and it would, you know, he might be a little out of place, but he's just... Right. Well, Also you... wonderful, and he loves Oklahoma. You know, it's funny, it's something I've always, like... I don't think people always realize, you know, differences, yeah, and similarities in America especially. You know, I... I you know, we've been touring for years now, and like, I vote differently than a lot of people in Oklahoma, I'm sure, but they're the nicest people. Like, I, that state in particular, because I've had a few friends from there, um, they're just the nicest people in that state. I've always thought, like, they were the warmest, nicest people when we were there watching basketball games or playing gigs there. They were just just really nice people i just really like that that place yeah one of the nicest people i met while working in the sports field was uh and and one of the the players that were dear to me when i was a kid bobby mercer in the early talk about the early 70s from oklahoma which i know uh mickey mantle is from but bobby couldn't have been the nicest guy you ever want to meet um yeah and i was gonna say you people from oklahoma if you're listening Go out and vote <laughs> for Adam's friend. If Underwater Sunshine is now endorsing. <laughs> I wonder who's from Oklahoma. My other friend, Roy. Roy Williams is from Oklahoma. That's right. There you go. Uh, yeah. Or maybe Roy's from Texas. No, he's from, what am I talking about? Roy's from where I grew up in California. He just played at Oklahoma. Ah. That's right. And, uh, but he's lovely too. And I think he still lives there in Dallas because whenever I'm there, he always comes by. He must still live near there. Another great person from from Oklahoma. There you go. There you uh, go. What do you want to talk about now? Well, we've gone full circle. Do you want to go back to a couple of things I'd like to play just to kind of get yeah, back? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, okay, so we were, earlier we were talking about uh, the keyboard sounds and the 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 uh, matching up Joan Arbitrating, and Adam brought up the fact that she does have a lot of the stylings and the uniqueness and the brilliance musically of Joni Mitchell. And Joni, in the 1980s, recorded an album called Dog Eat Dog. I think it was 85 or 86. I was working at a record store at the time. And, and um, the hot young keyboard player and sort of 80s sound guy was Thomas Dolby. And, and Dolby worked with Joni on this record. And there's a song on there, which is fantastic. And even though Joni had a very difficult time with Thomas Dolby and vice versa, um, this is one of her great songs, if not her finest song of the 1980s, called Ethiopia. Um, which talks about all the problems there and um, right around the time they did um, We Are the World and, and all that stuff about the, the, the food crisis in Africa. And it does have a – it's a very emotional song, but it just has those great awash sounds. I haven't heard this in a really long time, so I'm dying to hear it again too. Uh, and it was reintroduced to me when I was reading uh, The Reckless Daughter. So, uh, well, Tom's Dolby, Vinnie Caliuta is the drummer on this record from uh, 
Mother, isn't he the Mothers of Invention drummer? Oh, that's a good point. Um, yes. I think Jerry Hay, who plays the, did the horn arrangements, who arranged the string arrangements for, I want to say, Hard Candy. Songs no kidding. Hard Candy, I think. Wow. Uh, who else is on this record? Michael McDonald. Is uh, Larry Klein on it? Larry Klein, yeah. Well, he, he was... With Joni at the Produced time. a lot of stuff with Joni. Yeah, Pesh. sure did. And still, um, I think... Um, Rod Steiger has a speaking part on here. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Uh, this is a very eclectic album, and this is the finest track on it. But I think it's a good example of what we were talking about before, and it also will show you how Joni transitioned into the 80s, somewhat reluctantly. But on this record, I think she embraced a lot of the, the sounds they were going for, and uh, they they're really battled more in the mixing of the record than the recording of the record. But anyway, here's Ethiopia from Dog Eat Dog. This is the great Joni Mitchell uh, recording in the 80s, much the same way as Jody Arbor training, kind of transitioning to that sound from that period. Ethiopia, 
That's a really long fade. <laughs> I'm just thinking that. Yeah. I love the chorus. It's, again, you know, it's like she becomes a rhythm instrument, you know, and she's carrying it along. It's a, it's a true elegy. And I think it does, if you listen to the rest of this record, it, there's a lot of 80s crazy synth stuff going on. That one that's not as nuts. That, that could have fit perfectly fine on Hegera or... Uh, you know, hissing lawns, any of those records, they would have been fine. I mean, Joni never loses control of the the her songs, you know, uh, at all, whatever producer she's working with. But that is her most 80s record, if I may say so. And it's because of the influence of Dolby on there. And similar, I think, even in pacing as the Heaven. Although I find a lot more uh, the keyboard, the more of the modern keyboards in Heaven on the arbitrating song. But they do share a lot of those... Um, those sensibilities and the structure and the way they sing the songs are very similar. And this is when Joni's voice was dipping, you know, and she's singing more in that range now, which she would end up doing for the rest of her career. In the early days, I mean, she's all over the place, way up high and doing those acrobatics with her voice, which are so Joni, um, especially in her jazzy records. Um, but in the case of this, you know, for the rest of her career, she's going in that direction. Yeah, it's, it's her, her voice just 
gives me the the chills every time I hear it. You know, she makes you pay attention to those lyrics too, which are very stark. You know, talking about the uh, you know starvation and uh, not only the, the the economic and racial and political overtones of that, but just the the ecological ones. You know, the Earth, you know, little garden planet, oasis in space. Some hearts hurt; they can hardly stand the waste. Ethiopia, Ethiopia, Ethiopia. I was, uh, it was making me think of this phosphorescent song that I actually really want to play now. Okay. It's, uh, it's from Here's to Taking It Easy. They, they kind of blew up with their last album, Muchacha, which I was really glad because I think this guy is brilliant. Um, is his name Matthew Hauk? Is that the, the guy's name? Phosphorescent is the name of the band. Yeah. But I think it's really just him. I'm not sure. But he has this song called The Mermaid Parade, which is this thing that goes on out in Coney Island, I think. Sure. Um, Lou but Reed used to be the, would be like the, the grand, did, yeah, the grand marshal of the Mermaid Parade. Yeah, there's just something so sad about this song. The lyrics, like in New York this morning, it was 8 a.m. L.A. time, and I could be there by this evening, said the girl on the airline line. So I bought that ticket and I got in that cab, but I didn't make it, babe, to the airport like that. And then he goes to the chorus. No, I wound up walking out by the ocean today, and there were naked women dancing in the Mermaid Parade. And there will be naked women. Yeah. The Mermaid Parade is out there. Uh, aside from the, the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade, that is about as risque and uh, ebullient of all the parades in New York City. It's There's fantastic. just something so sad about the songs. He's talking about wandering out there while this craziness is going on. He's talking about this relationship falling apart. Uh, now our hearts were on fire only two weeks ago, and our bodies were like live wires down on the beach in Mexico. But I came back to this city and you stayed home in L.A. And then our two years of marriage in two short weeks somehow just slipped away. I know about your new man, your new older old man. And I heard that he's married. Oh, you be careful, Amanda. And yeah, I got a new friend too. And yeah, she's pretty and she's small. But God damn it, Amanda. God damn it all. <laughs> you know, and there's just something so... You'll hear it in his voice. It's just there's a catch in his voice on that, especially on that line. Oh, but God damn it, Amanda. This is the Mermaid Parade.
hearts were on fire only two weeks ago And our bodies were like live wires down on the beach in Mexico Then I came back to this city And you stayed home in L.A. Then our two years of marriage In two short weeks somehow just slipped away I know all about your new man, your new older old man And I heard that he's married, ah, oh, you be careful, man and Yeah, I found a new friend too, and yeah, she's pretty and small But goddamn it, Amanda, oh, goddamn it I went out walking out by the ocean today Yeah, there's something really that's a great song beautifully fragile about his singing it just kills me it just it feels like he's about to sort of break at any moment uh, have you not listened to them at all mm, you know what i think i have that- this is an album called here's to taking it easy and there's one recently called uh muchacho with a great that was a bigger hit it's got a bunch of songs on it there's one called song for zula um it's pretty he's pretty really really pretty good like his Guitar playing's great, and his songwriting's great, and his singing's really cool. Yeah, I I really like him. I think I know them from another song because that sounds very familiar to me. But yeah, I, my my first reaction to it was it reminded me very much of the way Don McLean phrases Vincent, and um, you know that really sad sort of detached, solemn aspect to it. But I love. When you read the lyrics now, it resonated, and then I found them, and I was reading along, which I love to do when we play these songs. And that takes me back to being a kid, too, reading the lyrics to songs and just kind of connecting to the songwriter. I just, it's a fantastic way of expressing that feeling. And we've talked about this a billion times on this podcast already. It's, a, it's very hard to express love and break up and everything in a unique way. And, and, I, and again, I love the, 
the backdrop of the fun. And by the way, the Monterey Parade is June 16th. Uh, so it's in June. And, um, you know, everybody's happy and the sun is shining, hopefully. And people are just having a good time. And he's crushed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this crushed. is sort of this, this talking about a marriage falling apart and the, the pain of knowing that hearing from friends that she's with a new guy. That's the worst of all the feelings. Right? I know all about your new man, your new older old man. And I heard that he's married. Oh, you be careful, Amanda. And yeah, I got a new friend. And yeah, she's pretty and small. And then he doesn't. You're waiting for him to sum it up, and he just can't. And instead of that, he just says, "Oh, God damn it, Amanda! God damn it all." That's just that is heartbreaking, you know. And he's singing it all like a little bit behind the beat, like he's not quite in the pocket. He's behind the pocket, and and it's just. Yeah. It makes it just more painful. Oh, it's just such it's, a good song. It is a great song. And it's played really well. The band is really rolling along. That's what I love about that. You know, we've talked about Dawes, too, and a couple of their records. I just love how the band just totally backs up the emotion of the song. And that's easy to say, but that doesn't always happen. doesn't always happen. Certainly, Counting Crows has that. We, we played quite a few songs in this podcast alone where the songs and the singer are kind of working together, but it's not... It doesn't seem like that. That seems like a bunch of guys who decided together they were going to bring across this emotion, and it comes across beautifully. But again, it's the vocals and the sentiment that drive it. It's it's a really, really spectacular song. I'm glad you played that. Yeah, the guitars knocked me out a lot, too. So what was that Joan Armatrading song you really wanted to play? Yeah, so um, my wife started digging on Armatrading in the aughts, the early aughts. And she loves this record called Lovers Speak. And this thing was playing in my house every day for weeks. Uh, and I think we used it on one of her, like I said, her, her um, well, the title track, Lovers Speak. Uh, the album is very odd. It's kind of poppy for her. But it just goes to show you, again, if you listen to her phrasing and her voice, she's in a new decade and she's going along with it. So it's great. You played stuff earlier in the podcast in the 70s. We played some stuff in the early 80s, and now here she is in, I think, 2003, and embracing a whole new... It's still her songs, it's still her voice, but it's different. It's definitely different. And I remember when she played, I was like, this is Joan Armitrading? Oh, wow. Good for her. You know, she, she's just going... She's, she's not easily pinpointed as one thing or the other. So this is from the record lovers speak, the song lovers speak, Joan Armitrading.
disaster could dull their senses, stop their play. Lover's world is so much different. Make me a native of that land. Let's all share this special feeling that lifts you up beyond the heavens. Lovers walk a loose, a tightrope with feathers thrown upon the ground. I wanna count all those blessings I'll get.
I'm never going to get tired of the sound of her voice. I know. It's just so it's just so beautiful and like the tone and timbre that she sings with just kill me. Great chorus. And I I was commenting that the the um the guitars in that they just they're sheened and it's it, they're in the background they got a lot of effects on it. I just love how it just drives it along the whole way. Yeah, it's it's nice. I forgot how lengthy that is too. She does that chorus like four or five times but she really Nails it every time. It's it's beautifully done. I like the bit at the end where it becomes very stark. It sounds great in here. That's a beautifully produced record. Who produced that? Do you have? Do you know who produced that? No, I have no idea. I'm gonna look that up. Well, you queue uh, up the next one if you. I want to finish up today because we. I think we're at that time. Although I've been failing to keep time correctly because <laughs> I keep stopping. Uh, I want to finish today with this uh, song I really love by Frightened Rabbit uh, and Scott Hutchison. Frightened Rabbit is a band from Glasgow, Scotland, and Scott Hutchison just died last week. And I really like this band a lot. I think they were great, and they wrote beautiful, heartbreaking songs, really. And I guess the deal was he just... I remember reading online, and and maybe the news somewhere, that he had disappeared on like on May 9th. Um, and that he was reported missing by the police and members of the band were online saying if anybody, you know, if anybody knows where he is, please, they asked him, his brother, Grant Hutchison on the, uh, on the Twitter account asked anyone with information on his whereabouts to come around because they were very worried about him. He had been pretty depressed, I guess. And uh, a couple days, the next day on May 10th, they found a body at Port Edgar in South Queens Ferry, it says here, which was confirmed to be him. And uh, he just wrote these really beautiful... Um, Frightened Rabbit was a nickname his mother gave him when he was a kid because he was really shy. But I think it describes the music in a cool way, too. There's just this energy to it that's uh, not overpowering, but but powerful. Um and I want to play a song. It's the first song I ever heard by them. It's from their record, The Winner of Mixed Drinks, which I think is their fourth record. I'm not sure. And it's from 2009, is that right? No, 2010. And it's a song called uh, Swim Until You Can't See Land. And the first verse of it is, I salute at the threshold of the North Sea of my mind, and I nod to the boredom that drove me here to face the tide. And I swim, I swim, oh, swim. Dip a toe in the ocean, oh how it hardens and it numbs. The rest of me is a version of man built to collapse in crumbs. And if I hadn't come now to the coast to disappear, I may have died in a landslide of rocks and hopes and fears. So I swim until you can't see land. Swim until you can't see land. Swim until you can't see land. Are you a man or are you a bag of sand? That's the... Well, there's more to the song, obviously, but you'll hear it. So... I'm going to play it for you, and then we're going to come back and wrap up today. Uh, this is Frightened Rabbit, Swim Until You Can't See Land. Mm-hmm. 
And a nod to the boredom that drove me here To face the tide and swim I swim Oh, swim And it numbs The rest of me is a version of man Built to collapse and crumb And if I hadn't come now To the coast to disappear I may have died in the landslide Of rocks and hopes and fear So I swim Until you can't see land Swim Until you can't see land Swim
I always wanted to have Frightened Rabbit like tour with us and open for us, and I never <sighs> got around to that. And uh, it's such a great band. Uh, Stephen Sondheim said that there's only two things you can ever leave behind you in life, and that's children and art. And the nice thing about it is that we have the art. Um, all said. And, uh, you know, I encourage you all to check out Frightened Rabbit Records. They have some really great stuff. Uh, but it's about time for us to sign off. This Perfect. is the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am Adam Duritz, and I'm here with my friend. Uh, James Gambian. That's a <clears throat> excuse me. perfect way to end the uh, a very eclectic and uh, <laughs> fun-filled run through different styles of music. Starts off with Joan and ends there beautifully. It's a great song. Everything you said it was going to be. It's my might be my favorite song that we've played today, which is saying a lot. So yes, I'm James, that's Adam, this is Underwater Sunshine. Thanks so much for listening to all these shows with us just playing songs, man, and talking about them. It's great. See you later. Peace.